We're continuing uh, this morning in our examination of the life and ministry of this man, Stephen, who was one of seven Greek men chosen by the congregation of the church in Jerusalem, commissioned by the apostles to administer the daily distribution of food to the widows in the church in Jerusalem. And as Luke introduces us to Stephen, he describes him as a man of good reputation, a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, full of faith, full of grace and power, uh, a worker of signs and wonders. We're also learning that Stephen was a powerful preacher. Uh, we'll see that especially today, a man who knew his Bible, who understood that the entirety of the Scriptures led ultimately and inexorably to Jesus Christ, whom he had personally embraced as Messiah and Lord. In chapter 6, verses 8 to, 8 to 15, we saw that opposition mounted against him, uh, almost, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, in, inexplicably and very suddenly, um, that some of the Jews began to debate with Stephen, but when they discovered that they couldn't withstand the spirit and the wisdom by which he spoke, uh, they did what they had done to Jesus. They started a smear campaign against him. They seized him, brought him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and produced false witnesses against him. Specifically, Stephen's accusers brought four charges against him that... Uh, First, that he had blasphemed or spoken against God. Second, that he had blasphemed Moses, the law giver. Third, that he had blasphemed the law itself. And finally, that he had blasphemed the temple, uh, the dwelling place of God among the people. And having heard the accusations against him, the high priest asked him the question in verse 1 of chapter 7, Are these things so? Are these things so? And remember now that this is the same council before which Jesus had stood, trial, uh, also charged with blasphemy by accusers who smeared him and instigated false witnesses against him. In fact, the charges brought against Stephen were quite similar to those brought against Jesus. And this is also the same council before which Peter and John had stood just very recently. And on that occasion... The high priest had said to them, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. A great progress report given there by the high priest. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Good on them that they had done that. Wouldn't it be great if we could fill the city of Olympia with the teaching of Jesus? Um, that, that ought to be a goal of ours shouldn't it? But also, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They were living under the threat of, of that being the perception of the people. Their reply must have still been ringing in the ears of the, of the Sanhedrin because they had said on that occasion, we must obey God rather than men. That is, we must obey God rather than you who think you represent him. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And now yet again, another 
follower of the crucified Nazarene is standing before them. And they must have thought, when will this end? When will this end? And, uh, you know, the, the historical answer is it never did. It just never did. And now again, a reminder of what we saw last week with regard to Stephen's task as he stood there alone, um, without a defense attorney, standing before the what we might think of as the Supreme Court of Israel, without a defense attorney, without any legal representation at all. He stands alone. First, he had to gain their ears uh, just to get them to uh, to listen to him long enough for him to say what he needed to say. Uh, I think he did that by, first of all, identifying with them, demonstrating that the things that were precious to them were also precious to him. He also was a Jew. Secondly, he had to answer the charge of blasphemy, multiple charges, actually, not simply to defend himself, but he had to demonstrate that his position was not blasphemous at all, but actually honored God's word. And he did that by visiting some pertinent facts from Israel's history that revealed some very uncomfortable truths to these erudite men who prided themselves on being the teachers and interpreters of the law and the prophets to Israel and who knew the truth, nevertheless, of what Stephen was laying down. And third, he had, in effect, to turn the tables on them and to demonstrate that they themselves were guilty of the very things of which they had accused him. So that the accused became the accuser, the one who was to be judged became the judge. And as Stephen began to speak, he focused on, as we saw, began to see last week, four major periods of Israel's history featuring five major characters. He began with the call of Abraham, and then he transitioned to Joseph and the Egyptian exile. We saw that last week. Third, this is where we're going this week, Stephen shifted his focus to Moses and his leadership of Israel through the exodus from Egypt and the wilderness wanderings. And finally, he concluded with David and Solomon in the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And in doing that, Stephen exposed two common threads that were woven through these four important periods in Israel's history. The first is that God's presence has never been limited to any particular place. Instead, he shows them that the God of the Old Testament is the living God, a God not bound to a temple, not bound to a city, not bound to a nation, a God who comes to people wherever they are and calls them according to his purposes. Each of those places becomes holy ground because it's made holy by his presence. And the second thread was that Israel as a nation has repeatedly rejected God, his law, his prophets, and now at last they've rejected their Messiah. And I don't have time this morning to provide a longer review. I hope that if you missed the message last week, you'll take it in online at your convenience. But this morning, uh, we're picking up where we left off last week as Stephen pivots now from his focus on Joseph to his focus on Moses in verses 
18 to 43. Our passage this morning is long, so I'm not going to take the time to have us stand and read it together. I'll read each section aloud as we come to it. But verse 17 of chapter 7 is the is a pivotal verse on which Stephen turns his hearer's attention from Joseph, the life of Joseph, to the life of Moses. This is, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. You remember that God had promised Abraham two things. He had promised him a land, the land of Canaan, and innumerable descendants. Uh, the descendants came first. So the time of promise in verse 17 relates to the land. And just a note, as you're watching the news um, these days, you'll often hear uh, Israel spoken of as the occupiers. And they are that. They're occupying a portion of the land that God gave them. But when you hear them criticized as being expansionist, remind yourself always that the present boundaries of Israel are much narrower than the land that God promised to Abraham. And uh, and so the land is theirs. It was given to them by God. According to his promise to Abraham, after 400 years, God would sovereignly keep his promise to judge Egypt, the nation who enslaved Israel, to restore the nation to the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, which God had promised <coughs> to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Well, Stephen divides the life of Moses into three periods of 40 years. And the first we read of in Acts seven seventeen to 22, which says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. See, this new king who didn't know Joseph had a problem. Um, he saw the growth of the nation of Israel within Egypt. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, notice this, are too many and too mighty. Too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And now, what, now listen to these three things. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies. Secondly, and fight against us. Third, and escape from the land. That is, we lose our entire workforce. The Egyptians lived in dread of the expansion of the Israelite nation among them. So this king, this pharaoh, attempted the first of two strategies, which was to make their lives much harder, to oppress them even more, making them work harder as slaves. They put them to work building major cities, uh, working their fields. But interestingly, in Exodus one twelve, we read that the strategy produced just the opposite of its intended effect. Exodus one twelve: the more they were oppressed, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. 
And it's almost axiomatic in the history of God's people that when when persecution comes, uh, we grow, we get larger, and uh, and Satan's efforts are thwarted. So Pharaoh announced the impl- implementation of Plan B, which was surprise genocide. Every son born to the Hebrews was to be thrown into the Nile and drowned. The Hebrew midwives resisted. And so in Exodus one twenty, we read again that the people multiplied and grew very strong. And it was at that time during those days of oppression, genocide, when the people's sufferings were greatest, their prospects uh, looked mostly bleak, that Moses was born the one that God had appointed to be their deliverer. And for three months, he was hidden and nurtured in his father's house. When the time came for them to release him, or in the words of the text, expose him, which meant essentially to leave, take a baby and leave them outside and allow the elements to take over. Um, When that time came, uh, God worked a miracle, and Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, who found him in a basket on the Nile River. And, and hence his name, Moses, which means drawn out of water or saved out of water. He was brought up in the palace as the grandson of, of the Pharaoh. He was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, we're told. And just think about what that means. Egyptian civilization was very advanced for its time. Um, Moses would have learned things like astronomy, Chemistry, metallurgy, mathematics, architecture, and the art of warfare, just to name a few. In fact, the Jewish historians, we don't usually think of Moses as a warrior, do we? We think of him as an old man with long white hair and a long beard, holding two big stone tablets. That's that's kind of our whole view of him. Um, But Moses was uh, a warrior. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded some of the exploits of Moses as a military general in Egypt. In particular, he goes into a great deal about a raid that Moses led on the Ethiopians. But Moses, uh, when you begin to shake it all out, was, was one of the two most educated men in the Bible, the other one being the Apostle Paul. Uh, Stephen says that Moses was a mighty man in both his words and his deeds. Interesting that Later, Moses said, God, I don't talk so well. Uh, But Stephen says he was a mighty man in both his words and his deeds, and maybe there was something about uh, his experience on the backside of the desert that uh, stole his confidence away. Well, notice that Stephen breathes not a negative word about Moses. He only affirms him and celebrates him. And then at verse 23, we meet Moses at 40 years of age. It's amazing, just a few verses and 40 years go by. But Moses remembered his people. He he never forgot that he too was an Israelite. When he was 40 years old, we read it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? That the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. See, on both of those two days, Moses thought his own people would, would realize, would acknowledge that his God-given vocation to deliver them. As Stephen says in verse 25, but they did not understand that Moses intended to be their deliverer. Will you notice with me that phrase, thrust him aside in verse 27? In fact, if you have a Bible, go ahead and underline verse 27 of Acts 7. Hold on to that for a little bit later. Because here's a moment that's both intriguing and tragic at the same time. Like Jesus, uh, Moses came to his own, and his own did not receive him. In fact, there are many, many parallels between the life and the ministry of Moses and the life and ministry of Jesus. But unlike Jesus, Moses became a murderer. And it's possible that this may have been the first time that Moses had ever felt the impulse to deliver his people. You might say that the time was not yet right and his method was entirely wrong. Because when the right time came, Moses would deliver Israel. He, He would lead them out of their captivity, not by his own power, but by the powerful outstretched arm of God. In the original text in Exodus 2, 14 to 15, we learn that, that when the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses realized in that moment that his act of murder had been made known, that uh, it wasn't a secret. It was now public knowledge. And when Pharaoh heard of it, uh, he sought to kill Moses. And so Moses fled from Pharaoh, uh, from Egypt, became a fugitive, stayed in the land of Midian. And there he took a wife and had two sons and served his father-in-law as a shepherd. Moses went from being a somebody in Egypt, a big somebody, to being a little nobody in the backside of the desert. At verse 30, we meet Moses in Midian at 80 years of age. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and of Jacob told Moses to remove his sandals in that place. Why? Because the place where he was standing in the desert in the wilderness, on the backside of Midian, was holy ground. What made it holy? The very presence of the living God. This statement is at the very center of a portion of Stephen's thesis, that whenever, wherever God is, wherever God is, is holy. And there was holy ground outside of the Holy Land. 
The same God who was with Abraham in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldeans and in Haran, was also with Joseph in Egypt, and now with Moses in Midian. And he was present also in Egypt at that very moment, because in Exodus 3.7, he tells Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. This same God had come down to set his people free, and he was now sending Moses back to Egypt to bring about their liberation. And again, Moses, during his 40 years in Egypt, would have said, I'm somebody. During his second 40 years in the desert, he would have said, I'm I'm really a nobody. But the God we serve is a God who's able to take a nobody and make him a somebody who's useful for the kingdom of God. Somebody should have said amen right there. At this point in his focus on Moses, Stephen, almost in staccato fashion, makes four bullet point statements about him. First of all, this Moses, most these statements all begin with the word this. This man, Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer, not judge now, but redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And earlier I asked you to take notice of this phrase, thrust him aside. See, Stephen understood that uh, the man who thrust Moses aside represented all of Israel, so that through that man all Israel had thrust Moses aside, had rejected him. Verse 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, this is the stuff of the, the Passover. This is the stuff of many of the feasts of Israel. Stephen recalls to the memory of, of these members of the, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, Moses' leadership through the plagues of Egypt, through the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire by night and of cloud by day, the manna and the quail, the water from the rock, the successful battles against ruthless kings and warlords, and so much more. In verse 37, he says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Deuteronomy 18.15, God spoke this to Moses, saying, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among, your, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him, it is to him you shall listen. So the Jews had always understood the prophet like Moses to be the promised Messiah. And that all Israel was to take heed to him, to submit to him, to follow him, to, to obey him. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. What was it that Moses received from from God on Mount Sinai? The law, right? The thing that rep- is represented by those stone tablets that we always see in the pictures. And notice how Stephen characterizes the law of God. He calls them living oracles. He received living oracles to give to us as oracles. They're a word or a command from God, something weighty to be taken seriously. 
In the Old Testament, in general, the word oracle denoted a message from God that was so heavy, so burdensome, that it became a burden to the messenger until it was delivered. But as living oracle, Stephen is affirming that that the law is both living and life-giving to those who keep it. Stephen expresses a high view of the law that God had given to his people through his servant Moses. But sadly, Stephen adds in verse uh, 39, the patriarchs refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside. There it is again. And in their hearts returned to Egypt. The patriarchs refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside and in their hearts returned to Egypt. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Those of you who are parents will appreciate the irony in Aaron's explanation when Moses came down from the mountain and asked him to give an account for what he had done. He said, well, we just put the gold in the fire, and out came this calf. Makes sense, right? Isn't that something like something your kids would tell you? I don't know how it happened. I just put the gold in there and out came this calf. It's hilarious. If it wasn't so sad, it would be hilarious. So Moses had been on the mountain for an extended period of time, and when he came back down the mountain, he found the Israelites singing and dancing around that golden calf that Aaron had made for them. And we go on in verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." I mean, they had just they had just come out of one four hundred year exile in Egypt, and now God's saying, "I'm going to do it again, and this time it's going to be in the direction of Babylon." In their hearts, they had not only turned back to Egypt, but they turned back to the gods they had worshipped in Egypt as well. By the way, has your heart ever been tempted to go back to Egypt? Your heart ever been tempted to go back to the old life? One of the one of the lines of a hymn writer that I resonate with is prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And uh, I would say that describes me and many of us. Because there's an allure. There's an allure to sin in the old life. 
and and we often turn back in our hearts. The first of the Ten Commandments in the law Moses received from the Lord said in Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Having rejected Moses and having rejected God, God gave them over to idol worship, to worship the sun and the moon and the stars as they had done in Egypt. And that entire generation that had come out of Egypt with Moses, God judged and they all died in the wilderness without ever seeing the promised land. So Stephen has traced the life of Moses through the first 40 years in Egypt the second 40 years in Midian, and well into the third period of 40 years of the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings. And he has demonstrated that in each period and in each place, God was with Moses. And Stephen, standing here before the the Sanhedrin leaves his judges in no doubt of his immense respect for Moses as both leader and lawgiver. He says, in effect, I'm no blasphemer of Moses. On the contrary, I elevate and honor Moses. Neither am I a blasphemer of the law. I reverence the law as living oracles given from God to Israel through Moses. But in simply telling the story, he simultaneously indicts Israel for its disobedience, its repudiation and rejection of Moses, the lawgiver, for turning in their hearts back to Egypt and for blatant idolatry. The shocking disrespect which Moses received then came not from Stephen, but from the Israelites themselves. It was they who failed to recognize him as their heaven-sent deliverer who thrust Moses aside, who rejected his leadership, who refused to obey him in the wilderness and instead in their hearts turned back to Egypt and became idolaters. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, observed that during the entire time of Moses' education in the palace in Egypt and on the occasion of God's appearance to him in the desert of Midian, there is not a word of temple and not a word of sacrifice. In fact, The holy ground at the burning bush, he said, was far more wonderful than the holy of holies. Well, on what basis could he have said that? And he said the answer is that nowhere in Scripture is it said that God ever appeared in the inner sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem in the same way that he did in the burning bush. Never in such a personal, direct way. So as Stephen now pivots to the final section of his defense, one of the major messages that we should take from the Bible generally and from Stephen's address to the Sanhedrin in particular is that the holy place, the holy place is wherever God may be. It's wherever God may be. Whenever, wherever we encounter Him becomes holy ground. And maybe like me, you would say there have been moments in my life when when God has met me in a particular way, in a, in a very real and direct and personal way. And those places became to me holy ground. I had the privilege of uh, growing up 
going each summer to a, a Christian campground up near up near uh, Kent. And on the occasions when I'm able to go back there, I I go back to some of those places on the grounds where God met me and give thanks and, and remember and kind of reset myself based on those things. It's this point that Stephen's going to drive home with great force as he now shifts his focus finally to, to two other major personalities in the history of Israel. They are David and his son Solomon. David and Solomon in verses 44 through 50. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. Translation, the tabernacle, otherwise called the tent of witness or the tent of meeting where Moses and Aaron would meet with God, went with the people wherever they went, whether that was in the wilderness or in the land of Canaan, the land of promise, In fact, as Joshua assumed leadership of Israel after the death of Moses, God said to him, and it's recorded in Joshua 1.9, The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus had said, Lo, I am with you always. At the time of David, the tabernacle was still standing. It was still in use at a place called Shiloh. Stephen continued, So it was. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Now listen how he goes on. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? To build a dwelling place for God among his people in the city of Jerusalem had been David's dream. It had been his grand obsession. But God had had affirmed that vision, but he also informed David You're a man of bloodshed. You're not going to be the man to build the temple. But his son Solomon would be its builder. The tabernacle, the tent that went with them in the wilderness, had been constructed as God directed Moses, according to the pattern God had shown him. Exodus 25, verses 1, 8, and 9. The Lord said to Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So God had given Moses instruction, and it seems that maybe God had given him a a vision of what the tabernacle should look like. But when the temple was built, when Solomon built the temple, it was patterned exactly upon those same specifications that God had given to Moses for the tabernacle. It was simply a permanent structure rather than a mobile tent. And don't miss the fact that Stephen has at no point suggested that it was wrong to have constructed either the tabernacle or the temple. He cast no shade on either one. 
But he does make this salient point that was inarguable because it was profoundly and thoroughly biblical. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Solomon himself understood this. In his prayer on the day of the dedication of the temple, he acknowledged, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Stephen could have quoted Solomon as he spoke to the Sanhedrin. Instead, he quoted from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. In other words, all those building materials you've assembled, that's a, that's, that's an amazing assemblage of building materials, but don't forget I made all that stuff. Remember when I was a kid kind of figuring this out because I'd hear, I'd hear the adults talking and saying that, you know, the church building was God's house. And a lot of times they told me that when I was running through the building and shouldn't have been. And I remember as a child looking up and we, in our church, we, we had the steeple and from the, from the worship area of the sanctuary, you could, you could kind of look up into the steeple and there was amber glass all around. And when the sun shone through there, it was, it was kind of glorious. And to a little kid, I thought, that's where God is. It must be where God is. And eventually I kind of, Figured it out that it wasn't. Um, and then I thought, how come they all, they're always telling me this is God's house? Shouldn't run in church, kids, but at least that's what I was told. Yes, sir. Thank you. So again, what, what's Stephen saying? He, he doesn't blaspheme the temple. He simply shows himself to be consistent with what both Solomon and Isaiah understood, what the entire Bible teaches, that the Jews should never have regarded either the tabernacle or the temple as God's permanent dwelling place in any literal sense. Why? Because no building can contain him. His dwelling place is with his people wherever they may be. He's here today. I have a friend who's a Roman Catholic. And uh, I had several conversations with her at one time, hoping that she might come to personal faith in Christ. Um, to my knowledge, she never did. But uh, there was one conversation in particular that happened to turn the, to the question of where Jesus resides. And I had asked her, you know, that question, where, where does Jesus live? And I was kind of hoping that she might say, well, he lives here in my heart. <laughs> That's what I was hoping. That's what I hoped she would answer. But she said something else. She said, well, that's easy. He lives in the tabernacle at the church. I went, wow. Not only, not only is he stuck in a building, he's stuck in a box inside a church. And I didn't know exactly what that was because I was raised thoroughly Protestant. 
unfamiliar with Roman Catholic practices. So I asked him additional questions and discovered to my surprise that the tabernacle of which he was speaking was an ornate box in the cathedral in which the, the consecrated elements of the Eucharist uh, of communion were stored, and uh, which many uh, Catholics, including her, believe contains the real presence of Jesus. And so similar, it seems to me, to the kind of superstitious reverence toward the temple to which the Jews had succumbed. They, they had God in a box. And in time, the box itself had become for them an object of idolatrous worship. So Stephen has now come to the end of his defense, and, and finally he, he wraps it up with a three-count indictment of the Jews. I don't know if he said these in angry words or just matter-of-fact tones. But here's what he said. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised, that terrible thing to say to a Jew, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So what are the three three counts of the indictment? First of all, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Secondly, as your fathers did, so do you. You, you persecuted and killed all of the prophets. If you get a chance, I don't have time to develop this right now, but look at Matthew 21, 33 to 46 and the, the parable of the tenants that Jesus taught. Because when he came to the end of that, we read that when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Bummer. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And third, you betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Jesus. You betrayed and murdered the prophet like Moses. You betrayed and murdered the one that you say you're waiting for. You betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And he summarizes all of that by saying that you received the law as it was delivered by angels. You were privileged in that. You were privileged in that. Among all the peoples of the earth that, that God gave to you, the law, living oracles, and you did not keep it. In verses, verses 54 to 60, then, we come to Stephen's Dying prayer. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. I want you to see three things in this final section. Stephen says, I see heaven opened. I see heaven open. He looks up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, the Jews understood the biblical imagery of the Son of Man, another messianic designation. It was the one that Jesus chose for himself from Daniel chapter 9. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They knew that he was speaking of Jesus. And what's interesting here is that in, in all of the Bible, we're told, or at least in the New Testament, part of the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament, the Son of Man sits at the right hand of God. The, the, the Son of God sits at the right hand of the throne of God. But Stephen sees something different. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. F.F. Bruce said, put it this way, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant, that is, confessing Stephen himself before God. It's as if Jesus stands to welcome Stephen, to bring him home. And I'm sure that Jesus is smiling at Stephen as the heavens are open, as he has this vision and seeing the Son of Man standing, not sitting now, standing to receive him at the right hand of God, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where else have we heard that expression? We heard it at the cross. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend, I commit my spirit. And then in verse 60, Stephen says, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Well, where else have we heard that? Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. And not only does he say it, but uh, the, the, the verb tense that Luke uses tells us that he kept repeating it as he's dying. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. There are many parallels between the death of Jesus and the death of Stephen, but here are a few. There are false witnesses that were were produced. The charge was blasphemy. Both of them were forcefully taken outside the city to be executed, and in both cases, the execution was accompanied by these two prayers as each prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners and for the reception of his spirit as he died. The only difference was that Jesus addressed his prayers to the Father, while Stephen addressed them to Jesus, calling him Lord, and thereby putting him on a level with God. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, that portion of the Sermon Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The words are almost perfectly fitted to the experience of Stephen, aren't they? I was talking with someone after the first service and just mentioning that most of us think of Stephen only as the first martyr of the church, the first one to die for his faith, and that, that's true of him. What we don't realize is that Stephen was one of the greatest men in the New Testament. And there's no command here in this text to us, but there is a profound example, isn't there? Of a man who spoke the truth of God, was willing to accept the consequences for his identification with Christ, and didn't back down didn't compromise, didn't rationalize, didn't backpedal. Not only that, but one of the things that Stephen, I think, did for that early church was that he freed their minds from the building. He freed the church from the building, from holy places that become sacred, so that they would understand that as they, as God sent them, as God propelled them by His Holy Spirit into the world, that, that God would be with them wherever they went. As Jesus had promised, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. His presence is as full and as real here today as it was on that day when Moses met with God at the burning bush. Something else that Stephen accomplished is he helped so that the apostles at that time and and believers down to today would know that God truly is with us even during times of intense persecution. And I kind of think that's coming for us. If not for us, for our children, for our grandchildren, Let me read, as we close, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, because this is the direct aftermath. Remember, we read that while Stephen was being stoned, those who were stoning him laid their garments down at the feet of a man named Saul whom we later come to know by his Greek name, Paul. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
persecution came on the heels of Stephen's death. But the more they were afflicted, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, and the church grew. I shared at the close of last service that one of my prayers for us here at LifePoint is that we would raise up a generation of young people who are like Stephen, Stephen's and Stephanie's, who in a darkening generation will stand for Christ. What a tall order it is to raise a generation like that. And my prayer is that we will be found faithful in that. That the children here at LifePoint will come to know Jesus Christ, not just be entertained in Sunday school, not just have a good time each Sunday, but that they'll come to know Jesus as their personal Savior and as their Lord, and that they will stand for him in a wicked generation. My fear is that the church, while my knowledge is, my complete knowledge based on what the Bible says is the church is going to keep shrinking. May we keep that circle unbroken in generations to come. And it will be as we are faithful to to teach our children the Word of God, to pray for them, to lead them to be productive, faithful believers. I don't know what lies ahead. Do you? I, I I don't know. But I do know that it's going to involve opposition. And it's already here. May we at LifePoint be like Stephen. Let's pray. Lord, um, what a, an amazing story. What powerful truths. And we do pray, Lord, for uh, this next generation of Christians. That they would not be Christians in name only, not just going through the motions, but really knowing Christ, obeying him, living faithfully, enduring opposition for the sake of the gospel. Lord, we want to pray, come quickly, and yet we also know that there are many who have yet to come to know you. And we pray for our ones as we have identified them. And, uh, Lord, we, we ask that we would see a great harvest. We pray for our children in our youth group, our young teenagers in our youth group, and, and uh, the children in kids' life. May they know you in a very personal way. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.